it's okay to fail, right? That's how we learn. And if you think about a baby learning how to walk, you know, how many times do they crack their head on the coffee table or scratch their knees or they, they fail? And so companies have to be able to do the same things because that's how we learn. From my risk profile, I'm okay encouraging people to try things. And if it doesn't work, okay, you try something else. The hardest part about that is often the culture around it. Welcome to Humanizing Software where we explore our ever-evolving relationship with technology and its impact on our professional and personal lives. Hear incredible stories and gain valuable insights from global industry leaders as we discuss their relationship with software and how it's developed over the course of their career. As technology continues to evolve and brings us closer together, it should enable people to do what they do best while we uncover what they do best with the help of technology. And now your host, Andrew Tall. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And welcome to this week's edition of Tailwind Business Ventures on humanizing software, where we talk about the myriad number of impacts that different technologies with software and with hardware and the impact that they have on our everyday lives, not only from a business perspective, but also from a personal perspective. We invite you to join us digitally, engage with us online, visit our website at tailwindsw.com, ask us questions during the course of the conversation as we continue to explore this concept of humanizing technology. Today, I'm exceptionally pleased to have the opportunity to have somebody join us that I've had the opportunity to know for the last, I'm going to say five or six years or so, not only as an individual that I've had the blessing of working with, but somebody that I also consider a friend as well, and a very good friend at that. Today, we have joining us Adrian Williams. Adrian Williams is a highly experienced senior technology leader and is currently the vice president of engineering at About Golf, which we'll learn a little bit more about today. He is a very, very passionate and results-driven technology and security leader that has experience in a number of different industries with software, with operations, and with information technology. He specializes and owns software. And not only specializes and owns software, but has a unique take on it in terms of some things to do and not to do, which I believe we'll be diving into today. So please join me in welcoming Adrian Williams to today's live cast. Good morning, Adrian. How are you? I'm doing well, Andrew. How are you doing today? Doing just fine. Excellent. So pleased to have you have the opportunity to join us, Adrian. And as I was thinking about that, I just said it. How many years have we known each other? So you're pretty close. It's been about five years. Okay. I had thought that to be the case. I wasn't sure just going back. And then we have that whole COVID thing, which is you can, you can be plus or minus two years or thereabouts. With It seems to be kind of a black hole in time, or at least it is for me. I've, I've kind of coined the word uh, yes tomorrow to try to keep up with it because it's yes tomorrow. Yep. I think we're going to actually have to figure out where we're going <laughs> to incorporate that in. That might be part of the uh, blog post that we do on this in the future. Yes tomorrow. I love it. I might actually try and use that in a sentence later today and see if I can accomplish <laughs> that. One of the things that we love to do is, of course, give the folks that are listening in have the opportunity to listen and learn a little bit more about Adrian Williams, the, the man, the myth. So Adrian, tell us a little bit about your story, just kind of where things got started, family, business, it's your story. So tell us a little bit about yourself, please. 
All right. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on here. I'm especially excited considering a plethora of, of fantastic leaders you've had before. So uh, thank you very much for inviting me. My story, uh, which one do you want? I, I can go either way. You know, professional, family, they're both intriguing and exciting, at least for me. I'll start with my family. That's that's the most important thing in my world, my family. So I've got a fantastic wife. I've got six children, which most people just are stunned about, ranging from my youngest is 16 to the oldest is 27. We've been a very exciting family, and we don't know how to be bored. We've got a lot of interests, uh, just even personally. I, I run the gamut from uh, I teach Okinawan karate, I fly powered paragliders, we scuba dive, we hike, we camp, we travel the world, and photography, just, just name it. I don't know how to be bored. We're trying to, to get our kids grown and uh, looking for the grandkids there. Professionally, I've, uh, I've been doing this a long time. Um, I, I used to like to joke that I was around when Al Gore created the internet, but I was actually around a long time before that too. Uh, I got started straight out of high school. Um, slinging tape on Vax, been you know doing COBOL programming for a long time, both professionally in the military, and just spent about 20 years as a software engineer, and sprinkling in project management, product management, and networking, system admin, just just the whole plethora of possible jobs that are, that are in the software world. Uh, I wrote a chunk of software for genetic genealogy of all things about 15 years ago. I sold it to a company in Houston, and they hired me to come out and run their shop. And so I really started getting a good taste of leading teams and understanding a lot of the pitfalls that, that happen with organizations and their technology teams. But probably the best way that I can characterize it is that in you know 30 plus years of doing this, that I've seen a lot of right ways to do things, a lot of wrong ways to do things. I've worked for a lot of great leaders. And I've worked for some folks that had no business lead. And so I've been able to take all of those experiences, good and bad, and kind of distill those down into just a really, really good set of practices um, to, to help companies and their technology groups be successful. It's interesting to me that 60 collective years of companies writing software as a business, that there's still a lot of practices out there that are not optimal, and a lot of companies are still struggling. So that's what I've have come to find is really my passion and my calling is, is stepping into those situations and, and just helping people and companies grow up. And, and I want to circle back around because I love the fact that you led with family. I've had the blessing of getting to know your family through you over the last several years. And I think it's awesome that not only do you lead with family, but whenever I think of Adrian, one word comes to mind and it is diversity. It seems like every time we have an opportunity to get caught up on a conversation or do lunch or just kind of have, have a text thread or whatever, I always seem to find out another one of your interests, um, <laughs> which which is kind of crazy. And, and they're all over the place. When you had mentioned paragliding, when you had mentioned piloting, when you had mentioned scuba diving, when you'd mentioned stuff, and knowing that you not only do them yourself, but with your family, it's one of those, where in the world is this, where in the world this weekend is Adrian going to be and what is he going to be doing? I'm certain that that diversity of experiences that you've had has led you to learn and try and have a different risk profile. I'd love to talk a little bit about that because I want the folks that are listening in to know a little bit more about some of the craziness that you love to invite into your life and how that impacts your thinking. So, uh, yeah, my risk profile is pretty high. I'm a firm believer in we get one life to live. And, you know, there's there's an entire 
volume of things that we'll never have the time to do. My, my upbringing, my, my parents were not really very active in anything. You know, my dad's two favorite things were clicking a mouse button and fishing. That was it. Luckily for me, I, I, I was exposed to the Boy Scouts. I was able to, to have a really good leader in the Scouts. And we got the chance to just really get out and explore and do all kinds of things. And so I think that was really kind of an early catalyst for me to get out and try, try new things, try different ways of doing things. Um, and that's really had an impact on, on my career and the way I think as a leader. One of the big things that I've found in a lot of companies is a, is a real culture of failure, a fear of failure. Say that 10 times fast. And the way I approach that is it's okay to fail. There's nothing wrong with failure, right? That's how we learn. And if you think about a baby learning how to walk, you know, how many times do they crack their head on the coffee table or scratch their knees or they, they fail and they learn from that. And so companies have to be able to do the same things because that's how we learn. From my risk profile, I'm okay encouraging people to try things. And if it doesn't work, okay, you try something else. The hardest part about that is, is often the culture around that. You know, there's been a number of times where I've had to kind of actually help change a culture profile for a company because they're risk adverse. So I was at a company where they were definitely afraid of PCI. You know, every leader before me had told them, oh, we stay away from PCI. You don't want to try to get certified. It's expensive and it's hard. And but we were already doing SOC and FISMA compliance. And, you know, PCI profile is not far from that. And I was able to, you know, gain their trust, which is an important piece of being able to fail, to go ahead and do it. And to realize at the end when it was actually quite easy to do, it's like, oh, well, that wasn't so bad. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it's risk is worth the reward. Calculated risk is important in business and especially with teams and you're developing you know, software that can make or break a company's bottom line. So it's interesting when you say the fear of failure, and I did take my time saying that because I was trying to actually <laughs> mentally get the, the little mouse on the wheel and the tiny little brain here. But so that fear of failure is something that seems to be very, very prevalent. And there's books and different blog posts. And if you Googled fail fast, that mm -hmm. seems to be one of the popular, whether it's trends over the last several years or, you know, it's, it's that iterate, 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 fail. Okay, if you're not, let's pivot, let's shift. And I'm curious on that take because I want to, I'm going to circle back around on the PCI compliance piece from a security perspective. But I want to dive first deeper on this fail fast idea or having the fear of failure. For me, being able to just do and move forward versus be static. There's always a chance of everybody gets a choice. You can either do something or do nothing. I'm going to usually opt to do something because even if I'm heading the wrong direction, ideally, I'll find it out fairly quickly. And at least I know, all right stop doing that. I need to be going this way and I can make the appropriate pivot or shift, but yet I'm still taking action. Sitting back and being passive isn't in my DNA. And I'm curious for that fear of failure that you have mentioned, what successes and what failures has that potentially led you to experience in your past lives that you've learned forward now as you're now running things uh, in your current iteration? I'll start off by saying I actually turned that phrase just a bit. I can't remember precisely what the original fail fast phrase was, but I actually, and I use it every, every week, literally is, you know, fail fast, succeed faster. It's a different, a little bit of a different twist, but if the mentality of that is important in that being able to embrace that failure, understanding that that will help us succeed faster, makes it easier to swallow for a lot of folks. There are a number of times where 
you know, failing fast has sometimes been kind of hard. It's usually that the thing that I found the most often is having everybody under the same understanding that we're going to fail fast. It's bringing people along for the ride that may not quite get what you're trying to do. Trying to, you know, again, it's culture a lot of times trying to, to teach people that it's okay. You know, we may not have all of the data right now to make a, a firm decision because there's, there's just some folks that are like that. Like I have to have all this information before I can get to a decision, right? You know, sometimes you hear it called it, you know, analysis paralysis, right? And you get stuck. And the problem with that that I found is that when you start getting in that mode, you end up getting into reactive situations a lot. It's really difficult to be proactive when you're spending so much time analyzing things. And so the biggest failures that I've had at moving quickly, at not being afraid to just stick it out there and do it, has been more on the, the personnel side of things, that people have a hard time understanding that and being able to wrap their head around that and do it. The environment has to be right as well to be able to fail fast and succeed faster. If your organization is speaking specifically about technology, right? If you don't have the abilities to make corrections quickly, if your pipelines, if it takes you a week to, to push something to production, right? If it takes you a week to test something, it makes it more difficult to be in a position where you can have these very fast iterations. And so that's, that's a really important piece of the puzzle to being able to be in a place where you can fail fast and succeed faster. The flip side is the successes of those quick those quick turnarounds tend to happen quicker than, you know, longer term uh, planned efforts. And I don't mean that, you know, you try things unplanned, you still plan them. You just plan them in much smaller chunks to, to be able to execute against them. I'm trying to think of a good example where we did this. Uh, actually, I can think of one right off the top from Periscope during COVID, as a matter of fact, our legacy flagship system was a very monolithic you know, process bureaucracy heavy system that normally would take, you know, 18 to 24 months to roll out to large clients because it was replacing their entire procurement engine. But with COVID, what we found was one of our states had exhausted their contracts to get the masks, to get the KN95 masks. Nobody had them. But because the state was was tied into the, only the contracts that they had that they could order from, they were in a bond. And so we were able to take our system and say, you know what, let's try this. Let's see if we can take this thing that's normally a single tenant solution that is absolutely siloed for each client. Let's take this and let's try this real quick and see if we can find a different way to source these things for these guys. And we did. We came up with this like emergency marketplace where they were able to start ordering off of other states' contracts, right? Like these guys have plenty of supply out here. Okay, well, we can leverage that since we're using the same software now. We can leverage that and we can order our supplies off of their contracts. So, you know, and that really ties together a lot of our conversation around humanizing software. How are we helping the end clients, right? So not only did we help the state solve their problem, but we got people masks, right? And we did that because we weren't afraid to say, hey, let's try this real quick, see if this works, right? We didn't have a long six-month, you know, process to say, okay, well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to implement it? How are we going to document it? We're like, no, let's just try it and see what happens. And so that's, to me, is a really good example of how, you know, being fleet-footed, being agile, as I like to say, there's a difference between doing agile and being agile, is really beneficial for everybody. Involved. So lots of threads there that I want to tug in on. And I want to go back to the one that we had previously mentioned, where work environments leading to either success or to creating barriers to success. 
and you had mentioned, I believe, a specific environment where they were terrified of PCI, essentially the, the compliance component of making sure you're taking care of personally identifiable information. And PCI compliance is certainly something that if you're dealing with financial information, it is absolutely critical. And especially in light, and I don't know if you've been following the story with Uber's previous Chief Information Security Officer Joe Sullivan, who in one of the first kind, he literally was not only criminally charged, but indicted for hiding the fact of a security breach. And we talk about this quite a bit on this humanizing software, the difference between security and privacy and making things easy versus making things accessible while still maintaining some semblance of we're, we, the technology company, are going to protect you, our end users' data. Well, this was a case where obviously not only did it happen, but the people that were responsible for it did some egregiously bad things, not only were caught, but now it's kind of piercing that corporate veil, which I think is going to increase people's fear, going back to your fear piece, of maybe additional controls needed. Who knows where that's going to lead? But my my centering point that I want to come back to on this is this environment of either fear or scarcity or mindset of we can't do that because it's not the right thing to do. We're moving too fast. We don't know what we're doing. Put in the appropriate we're concerned about. But when you've got this environment that doesn't embrace change, that doesn't embrace agility, and that imbibes fear throughout the organization, it's got to be extremely challenging to be able to get anything done. And I'm really curious on your take, Adrian, on this, of living, breathing, working in that environment. How does one successfully manage through that type of a situation? So I think the primary cause of fear in organizations is a lack of trust. It's a lack of transparency and it's a lack of integrity. Then in a couple of different companies where my predecessors obfuscated information or they were they didn't do their homework and they weren't accurate with their representations about things. And so then that leads your senior leadership team to be wary and okay, well, you burned us on this. Okay, how am I supposed to trust you about this? That just kind of snowballs really quickly into, okay, you know, I, I can't trust you. So now I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid you're going to do something that I don't know about that's going to hurt us as a company or hurt our employees. I'm afraid that you're not going to be able to do these things, but I'm not going to know because you're not going to be honest with me about it. The way that I've been successful at dealing with these kinds of things is embodying those very things that are lacking, right? Being trustworthy, having the integrity to go in and say, you know what? This is a problem. We screwed up. I own it. Here's how we're going to fix it, right? Here's the consequences. Here's the things that we have to worry about because we screwed this up, but we're going to fix this. And here's how we're not going to make that mistake again. Right. Because that's an important aspect about failure. It's okay to fail. It's okay to fail twice. The repeated failures on the same thing is complacency. That's not, that's a different kind of problem. So having the transparency, because a lot of, a lot of folks are afraid to be transparent about things because they're afraid of reaction. A great example was at Periscope when I started, they did not have any idea on how much time this project was going to take to finish. The executive team was frustrated because they kept having dates that kept getting blown. They kept seeing the same uh, sprint reviews over and over again. They couldn't understand why nothing was changing. And they were really frustrated and angry. And they were very distrustful of what was going on. And my first real interaction with the CEO was me having to go to him and sell him that 
there's no way you're getting all the stuff that you want when you want. It's not going to happen. And and for a new guy in an org, that was kind of a, okay, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, a potentially career-limiting move in the parlance of the industry. But it, it's a little scary. I mean, we're human beings. We, we have fear in ourselves. And it can be scary going into the boss and selling him bluntly and cleanly, you're not going to get what you want. And and a lot of folks sometimes have a hard time doing that. And so they'll hedge. But you can't. You know, that moment was probably the most pivotal moment in my relationship with my CEO because it established very clearly that I've got bad news and I'm not afraid to come in and tell you what the bad news is and be clear and transparent about it. And the other piece of that is, and here's how we're going to solve it, right? And then carrying through with that. That's how you establish that trust because after that, it got to a point where I didn't have to be wary of his reactions. I didn't have to worry about him supporting me in any other endeavors where I wanted to fail fast, right? I want to go and say, okay, here's how we need to solve this. But it's, it's a little risky, but we're, you know, 88% sure this is the right way to do it. Okay, go for it, right? Because he knew that if it didn't work, he would know. And so those behaviors as a leader are critical to changing that culture of fear. So what I'm hearing is in your personal experience, that environment of fear was based off of either a lack of trust or transparency, where the environment hadn't yet been created where somebody felt comfortable enough to say, hey, look, the emperor has no clothes in this case, or you've got a list of priorities that you expect to have done in the next three to six months. You're going to get one or two of them, maybe. And that's a hard message to deliver if the previous message has been, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do it, we'll do it. But you yet you're saying something but the actions aren't leading to that coming through. And it's just creating this environment where it's a circular series of not only distrust, but nothing's getting done effectively. Right. But it's also a two-way street. The other half of the equation here was my CEO, right? The, his ability to sit back and say, okay, and not just push his agenda no matter what, right? He listened. And that's an art. Not, it's something that, that some folks just are not very good at. They don't listen. One of my very favorite quotes, Steve Jobs totally stole this from me. He said that essentially we don't hire smart people to tell them what to do. We hire smart people so they can tell us what to do. But you have to actually embody that and believe it and follow that. And and that's that other half of that equation. If you've got a leader coming to you saying, hey, you know, we're not going to be able to do this because of X, Y, Z, but here's what we'll have to do. They're not just making stuff up normally, right? They're the ones who've got the most data that they're generating this information from. And so you have to trust them. You've got to give them the the wherewithal to be able to actually do it. If you've got a leader that's just got an ax grinder as a specific agenda and is not listening to what these intelligent people are telling them, you're not going to change the culture. That has to come from both directions. So bi-directional trust, transparency, and the ability to effectively listen to manage and make that happen. Yes. Very good lessons, uh, very good leadership lessons, and very good, by the way, just being human lessons. Yes. And, and, and that leads into, I know you've had quite a bit of experience on the software side and in terms of trying to make different types of 
enterprise level software do different things for different individuals and organizations. And in many cases, and the one that obviously we had the, the, the chance to work in, uh, work together with, with Periscope and Tailwind partnering together was on these very, very complex procurement systems and, and, and dealing with state organizations, state government type organizations, which perhaps might not move as fast as other, other organizations may or may not move. But I'd be curious, let's talk about humanizing software as it pertains to your take on being agile, being, or excuse me, I love the phrase failing fast, but succeeding faster. So let's talk about your previous experience and whether it was with, with Periscope, with Fiserv, with any of your previous past stations, or even where you're going to be going now in your current one. Tell us a little bit about your take on humanizing software, Adrian. Sure. There's a lot of possibilities there. You know, Periscope was a very interesting model in that it had both government agency support side of the house and the vendors, the guys that are actually the masons and the carpenters and, excuse me, I build boat docks for a living kind of guys, right? They're the guys actually looking for the work. The concept that we went into with Periscope, especially at the agency level, was, you know, we're wanting to reduce the amount of waste in government. And, you know, we want to make everything as efficient as possible. Efficiency then reduces waste. We wanted to maximize the dollars that these entities are spending. And while that on the surface may not make a whole lot of sense about humanizing software, here's how it does. Think about the amount of, if, if our software was able to reduce the time it takes to go through bid processes and it saves them $500,000 a year in labor costs. Well, that's $500,000 that they now have that they can go spend on veterans programs. I'm a vet, right? That's a really important thing to me. Schools, my wife's a school teacher. You know, they're always struggling for money. Social services, they, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And all these other things that are usually cash strapped. Well, now they've got a little extra cash that they can use for these other programs that directly impact human beings that have nothing to do with the software itself, right? They're a tertiary impact on what we're building and our cues. So for me, at least at Periscope, that was a, a huge benefit of what we were doing, right? To me, that was that was a greater good of what I do for a living. Sure, we can make improvements to the software to make accountants' life easier to handle, you know, purchasing and procurement, but being able to do their job quicker and easier was had a greater benefit overall, you know, just to fellow mankind to, to sound a little cliche, but the software we had for the vendor side of the house, right? If I'm a mason and I'm looking for work, you know, it's hard. If you've ever been in a trade skill or known anybody in a trade skill, finding jobs can be really tricky and tricky hard. And so making it, you know, very simple for the, the vendors to be able to find these bids to submit proposals to, simplifying the bid process to make it quicker on them because the more time they're spending doing these bids, the less time they're actually working, you know? A lot of these guys are contractors, and so they've got people working for them. And so it's got that same trickle-down effect of, of it impacts more than just our specific customers. So even with, you know, about golf, what I'm discovering is there's a thing. There's golf centers. And up in the north, there's golf centers everywhere. It's like bowling alleys except with golf simulators. And it's a huge business for a lot of these guys where they've got, they run leagues throughout the winter. And, you know, and so we're actually working right now, trying to, you know, I'm talking with a lot of them, talking to understand their pain points. And 
their pain points are actually impacting their customers, their people. And so, you know, we're actually, you know, literally just before this call, you know, ideating, okay, here's the pain points that a lot of these folks have. How can we solve this? How can we fix this for them? And it's all going to be through software. So the concept of, and, and I think touching on the last point that you mentioned, leveraging software to solve problems. Obviously, that almost is a self-fulfilling prophecy or statement in, in and of itself. There are examples, and we've discussed them in the past, of software that effectively solves problems and software that might seem to be trying to solve problems, but is effectively creating more problems than maybe what it's worth. In your mind, and I would not mind if you don't mind naming names, what would be some effective examples of software that fits that need of succeeding faster, being agile, being able to, when I click here, or when I interact in this manner, it's doing what I expect it to do. So what are some good examples of software that is properly making that human connection? And then what are some examples of some that you've come across that perhaps might still need to be working a little bit harder in that area? You want me to name names or not? Absolutely. Let's name names. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so software serving a greater purpose and doing well and stuff that's, that needs some work. The one that jumps right off to the top of my head is actually very personal to me. I have six children, right? And four of them are teenagers. This current day and age with, yeah, thank you. I'll take all the blessings I can get. Um, <laughs> you know, this day and age with social media, with device usage, with everything is on a phone, right? It's a real challenge as a parent to protect them from themselves, protect them from all of the stuff that's out there. One of the biggest challenges I think that I've seen is consumption. Consumption is a, to me is a big problem. My wife sees it in the schools. We see it everywhere we go. You know, you see a, a two-year-old at a table with an iPad and we've actually personally gone through some challenges with consumption problems. And so one of my very favorite pieces of software that my children just adore is Norton Family. It is a chunk of software you put on any device they have, whether it's a laptop or a phone, and you can actually control their usage and their consumption. And so, you know, to me, you can't use your phone during school. You're supposed to be in school. You should be studying. You should be doing your school or paying attention. So you can actually block out school hours. You can, you know, control 30-minute increments of time. And, and so long as that screen is open and running, a timer is running. So you can say you get three hours a day, and that's it. Anything more than that is too much. And then at three hours, it locks it up and that thing is a brick. It's done. So that that has helped us kind of keep our kids. I mean, we've actually gone through where we've said, you know, you know, this is going to be a device-free weekend. And so we put the devices up. And by midday Sunday, our children are back. They're different. It's noticeable. And so for me, that tool is fantastic and it helps teach them limits. It helps enforce those limits because it's really hard unless you're actually on their phones, right? It's hard to do that. You know, a lot of the tool sets that are out there, especially in technology land, you know, our communication tools that we have today are incredible, right? You've got Slack, you've got Zoom. Being able to connect, I think, is one of the most difficult things we face now in this remote, for remote workforce that we have, right? How do we continue to be human when all we see is a screen? And so my rules when I'm having a meeting is everybody's got their camera on. I want to see faces. We want to still make sure that we're still being human beings with each other, not just on the computer. 
And so those kinds of tools that allow us to really facilitate us being able to communicate as close to being in person as possible is very cool. What are some challenging softwares that probably need a little work? I'm not going to call out any names on that one, but I will give you some examples, right? You know, not all communication systems are the same. They're not all as robust. So when I mentioned Slack and Zoom, there's a lot of competitors out there that probably need some work to do. There's, Mm -hmm. I know there's some that people just abjectly despise, Mm -hmm. but they have to use. I know one of the challenges that I see, I'm going to, again, I'm going to go back to the schools because it's obviously I have a lot of time with schools. What's happening now is I think there's too much tools. There's too many tools being used instead of one of the common complaints I get from my twins is that, you know, one of their teachers, they're not teaching. They're just saying, go watch this YouTube video, go watch this that YouTube video. And they're not actually taking the time to deconstruct mathematical processes or scientific processes. They're just expecting the kids to learn it off of YouTube. And that leads to my children being frustrated because they are kinesthetic learners, right? They learn by doing, not by watching. And so I think a lot of times as a society, we tend to start relying too much on these tools. I aggravated the, the absolute mess out of my daughter a short time ago because I took a picture of her when she was actually using her telephone as a telephone, <laughs> right? I, it was the first time I'd ever seen her actually make a phone call with this thing. But then at the same time, I'm trying to teach them, like my oldest son is, you know, if you're trying to find a job, you have to have a phone number that they can call. They're not going to email you. It, it's right? funny. It's funny you say that, Adrian. I, um, Paul O'Brien has been a guest of ours on the past, uh, a good friend of mine as well. I think you know Paul. And I called him yesterday and he answered going, whoa, wait a minute, a live phone call? This thing yeah. actually works as a phone. He literally said that last night. And I, 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 I found that quite humorous just based off the fact that we, we have these devices that we're obviously joined at the hip with for good and for bad. And, and I love the fact that you're, you made the comment about you get your kids back when they are doing their, when, when people are away from the screen. And actually, in this case, because we're now on a Zoom and we're, but I say Zoom, we're on StreamYard and we're leveraging this technology where we're not in the same place, but it's almost as if we're in a broadcast studio to where we're able to communicate, we're able to see each other, we're able to get a little bit of the visual cues, which still is not and never will, in my mind, be the same thing as being able to have that rich human direct contact interaction, which I think so many of us long for during COVID when that was the, you know, you can't do that. And we did have to either start using or continue to use a lot more these type of crutch technologies that still enable conversations and communication and business to occur, but have that added sense of, I need to be not only present in the moment, I need to be focused. You say keeping your camera on so that you're able to actually have those visual interactions. And I think that's a a large part of the keeping people in as part of the equation. And that's one of the last questions that I have for you, Adrian, is this people-driven technology. The, The live cast is all about humanizing software. We're talking about trying to keep humans back in software. The subtitle, however, sometimes is the source of an even more interesting conversation, people-driven tech. When I say those three words, what do they mean to you in particular, Adrian? It actually, I've got two different sides to that answer. People-driven tech can be software for the greater good of, of people. 
right? How are we solving people's problems? And I've heard a lot of folks talk about that side of the equation. What I haven't heard a lot of folks talk about is the opposite side of that equation, the people that are creating the software, because they're human too, right? You know, talking about tools that are, I think are one of the greatest things that we've done is you know, natural, natural language processing, right? I can, I can take my phone and if I'm feeling lazy for the moment, I can, you know, I can tell my wife, I can send her a text message and say, you know, do you want to sub for lunch, right? And every once in a while, it'll come back and it'll say, do you want to watch a submarine launch? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> right? uh, no, that's not what I was saying, right? That's not what I wanted to do. And, you know, I hear a lot of people complain about technology. Well, this sucks. Why, don't they, why doesn't this work right? You know, or why can't they fix this? Or why can't they do this? And the book, the lot of folks I think sometimes don't understand is a computer is just a dumb chunk of sand. So it's just a piece of silicon. Right? It takes human beings to actually code and tell that computer how to work. And you know that phone, that's a computer. That's a very good computer, right? But it takes somebody to program all of that brain that that computer uses. And we're human. We're not perfect. You know, we have that human condition. And I think sometimes people, it would be helpful for them to realize that there's people on the opposite side of the equation that we have to support and help to write these things, to write this software that then helps other people. So I may or may not have said some things to Siri in the past that (laughs) I would be ashamed to admit based off of her lack of understanding of what I really meant to say. You can easily read that however you would like to read, whether it's user error or whatever else might be the case. But again, that may or may not have happened in the past. We can we can move on from the, the AI aspect of things. So as we wrap up today's episode, I've got a question. You're in a little bit of a chapter next transition with About Golf. Uh, congratulations on the new role as VP of Engineering. What does About Golf and Adrian look like from a humanizing software and continuing down the path of you living out your passions? What, 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 what does that path look like for you now, Adrian? It's, it's a curious challenge, for sure. You know, the, the people that this product serves is a little different, right? It was about as far removed from government as you get. So like, like a lot of companies, you know, I think that About Golf has got some maturation to go through, people's processes and how we're building software, but also in understanding our customers because it can be varied. I mean, you've got, you know, one of the challenges we have is, you know, how do we engage young golfers, right? It's a total different group of people than, you know, your, your middle-aged guys that are going out there on the links every week. Right, they think different. They they are entertained differently, and so what has generally worked for keeping the you know the, the middle aged generation of golfers happy in a sim doesn't work for the youth of today. You know, and so we have to think about what their lives are like, what their perspectives are, and build to satisfy them. Again, the people on the other side of the equation are still important, right? Because we all have our own experiences, we all have our own expectations of. As engineers, as developers, as you know, product managers, as, as sales guys, the software has to support them as well, right? And so, having good practices in place is going to be important as I move forward with these guys. It's going to be making sure we've got a good product strategy. So uh, it's no different than any other place I've ever been, as far as the same tools that I've learned over the years are still applicable here. So I don't know if that's the best answer to that question or not, but it's kind of tricky. Well, it sounds like there's going to be some challenges of the past, 
Yes. There, there will be some challenges of the present and you're going to figure that out. And of course, there's a whole host of us, me at least towards the front of the line that are excited to kind of watch and witness as you're going to continue to do what you've done in the past with About Golf. So I know it's the beginning of an awesome new journey for you. I'm particularly excited for you, Adrian, because I know the passion with which you bring not only to all things family, but also to all things business. So the absolute best of luck to you as uh, as you continue forth uh, with About Golf. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really excited about it, Seth. Absolutely. And that's a great stopping point for us today. So first of all, Adrian, thank you so much for joining us for today's live cast on humanizing software. And as we continue, we want to make sure that we invite everybody to please continue to engage with us in our conversations. Talk to us about what your viewpoint is on humanizing software. Visit us on Facebook, on LinkedIn, our YouTube channel as well to view any of our previous episodes. And as we are continuing forth and thinking about this concept of fail fast, but succeed faster from Adrian, we'll go ahead and put some sort of hashtag in on that. We want to wish everybody a very, very safe and blessed week. And thank you for joining us in our conversation today. So as we finish up today, a very, very, very good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Thank you so much for joining us in our conversation today. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Humanizing Software with Andrew Tull. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.